to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. My name is Rich Rodowski. I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at LBT. Today we are talking about scripture and music with LBT missionary Rob Veit, who serves as an ethnodoxologist and consults on projects with several partner organizations. Rob has a background in music production, among many other things, and has a master's degree in ethnomusicology from Liberty University. Joining us is Rob's wife, Ishni, who serves as LBT's training coordinator and who also has a musical background, as you will hear in our conversation. At the end of the episode, we'll invite you to consider how you and your congregation or a small group of folks that you share your faith life with could benefit from composing your own scripture songs and the value in going deep with scripture through creative processes like the one we'll describe. Enjoy today's episode. Well, today we are welcoming Rob and Ishni Veit to the podcast, and we're going to talk about composing scripture songs. And uh, this is something that uh, Rob and Ishni are both passionate about, have done quite a bit. And for the listeners here, we talked about making this episode, and then I sent them a psalm, Psalm 77, uh, 11 and 12, and said, hey, what can you do with this? And that's how we got started. And really, that's all the knowledge I have in general about the process. So we're going to let Rob and Ishni walk us through what happens next when you record Scripture, you select a scripture and and do some work to compose it. But first, I just want to have the listeners get to know you two a little bit better. So tell us some about how you got involved in Bible translation ministry and what you were doing before, how God led you to serve with LBT. Well, Nick, Disney started that. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I, I was with Youth with a Mission in Haiti doing a disciple training, discipleship training school. And as a part of that time, we were actively praying regularly for um, God's plan for our lives. And in the process, I learned about Bible translation. And that became something that I was really excited about and really wanted to do. And so this was before email. <laughs> and so I wrote letters to Bible translation people that I heard about with Wycliffe and a series of letters got me to the Canada Institute of Linguistics, uh, studying linguistics for a summer in British Columbia. And while I was there, I found that, yes, indeed, I am wired for linguistics. I do have uh, Bible translation skills. Mm -hmm. So um, in the course of being there, I met Rob at lunch. I had heard some of his music that a friend of mine was recording music for me and also recording music for Rob and playing our music for each other. So I expressed an interest in meeting Rob. And so we met and then I continued studying linguistics and he continued working in the Seattle area uh, for a tech company and things got serious <laughs> and he proposed <laughs> and uh, and I said, Sure, just as long as you understand that that means we're going to be doing Bible translation. So I will be working with a translation project and you need to find something useful to do while we're overseas. And he said, sure. So um, we reached out to various Bible translation organizations after we got married and uh, had a great conversation with the recruiter at LBT, who when we Email existed then. So we wrote to LBT and Peter Slayton got back to us and said, yeah, I'll be in your area next week. Let's get together. So I told him about my interest in in Bible translation. But then Rob had a conversation with Peter. If you want to share about about that, Rob. I'm taking most of the good material. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just he, he interviewed me about my background and I have a, um, 
and just said, you're, you're, you're a vernacular media specialist. And then he explained what that would be. And that's become my, that was my initial work with LBT was, is in vernacular media. And I've kind of evolved into the ethno arts role that I have now. Yeah. So, but your, your uh, work with LBT wasn't the first international work you had done, was it? You had done some things before that? Cause that might've yeah, been quite a, yes. a shock to say, okay, I'm going to marry this lady and, you know, do this thing I hadn't planned on doing. So my first overseas, this is actually how I got into the work that I'm doing was I spent time in Ecuador in the early nineties uh, working with what is now reach beyond. It was then HCJB or world radio missionary fellowship. And uh, my background is in, in writing and commercial art. And so I was there working on their magazine. And one of the things that I do whenever I travel is I, I try to look for, and I've done this before I, before I knew that this is how I was wired. I would look for music that could only come from the place in which I was. Mm-hmm. That would be my souvenir from a trip. And in, so this, this is in the Andes Mountains, which if you know folk music, that has one of the, the great folk musics of the world comes out of the Andes Mountains. And so I wanted a, an Andean group playing Andean folk music on a CD. And I could not find any decent recordings of Andean folk music from that area in the shops. And as someone who loves the world folk music, that was disheartening to me. And so I began with this idea of we need to document these these musics from around the world that might otherwise be lost, which is similar to what linguists do with language, but I was thinking yeah. of it in terms of music. And it didn't become a, a missionary vocation idea for me until several years later when I learned that there were people that worked as missionaries that were helping them develop church music and styles from around the world. And I, I wasn't able to act upon that as a thing until after Ishni and I got married. And I saw that as something I could move into because now I had a reason to. Prior to that, it's hard to change careers when you have a successful career as a commercial artist. Mm. I, I did some coursework early on and I just, uh, I'm working full time and going to school half time and not sleeping anymore. <laughs> I didn't get very far into the program before I just quit. I didn't have a, I didn't have an exit trajectory at that point. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, you were interested in the the local style of music that would be from local artists in their local style, which kind of dovetails some with language, you know, written and spoken communication language. There's no such thing as a universal language there. Uh, but people talk about music in a way as having a universal language, but you would say that there's something universal about it, but there's something very specific culturally about music, too. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah. Yeah, so music is a universal phenomenon, but in the same way that there are many languages in the world, there's there's actually a lot more musical languages, and musical languages have grammar and syntax, and they have mm-hmm. uh, sub-meanings, and they have idioms, just like, like spoken languages do, but there's a lot more of them, and there's a bit more crossover. When I first got to, to Botswana, uh, we visited a group that they, they have three drums in all their their songs. And it, to my ears, it was just the first time I got there, the drums were all playing un, entirely unrelated things. And I just thought, this is just cacophonous. I don't understand what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now I do. I understand exactly what I'm hearing. And I can separate what each of the different drums is doing. But I had to learn that language. 
And in the same way, someone that has no background in Western music hearing a classical composition with 99 instruments playing different things, it's just, it's cacophonous. If your music of, of, that you grew up with is three drums and, and you get a violin section, it doesn't make any sense. It's a language you can't speak. There's something to the the sort of the heart aspect of music then that if you know if we're thinking about worship would speak to that. For example, uh, just incidentally, we have sometimes joked about and you know, we're sitting with uh, folks singing traditional Lutheran hymns and in the Lutheran tradition, which have some strange minor keys and things like that. And um, some folks that are not from that tradition find that difficult to relate to, but yet others who are have grown up with that tradition really deeply resonate with that. So you find the same phenomenon exactly. in music universally. Yeah. yeah, I guess that speaks to the importance of not just importing a certain style that is universal, but really looking into what speaks to the heart. So how do you go about that? Well, when I, when I talk about heart music, um, I, sp- I think of it differently than a lot of my colleagues do. Mm-hmm. And if musics are different languages, your own heart music is going to be a combination of the musics that you relate to. So for me, I have this mix of American and British and African folk musics. So the music that speaks to me is this kind of, it's, it's this deep roots music from various places that I've spent significant time. And other people are going to have different root music. I don't, I don't relate at all to Lutheran hymnody, right? right? But for some yeah. people, that's, that's really powerful to them. And, uh, but it won't be the only thing that's powerful to them. Sure. Right. So you might, you might really appreciate, Lutheran hymnody and hip hop. These are your heart musics. Yeah. Uh, and so the, where I go, there's two ways you can go about learning what the heart music is. Uh, there's a great question that, that some colleagues of mine in, uh, in Asia ask is how do you communicate important things in ways other than normal speech? Mm-hmm. which is the, the most open-ended question about, about what, what are their, their forms of media that they use, what are the forms of art that they use to communicate important ideas. And it would always end up with music, but often there's a musical component. So there'll be some ways that they sing things, but there are also other ways that they communicate important information. I will often have people just, if we're doing a music event, it's, we'll compose first and then figure out what we've done. Mm-hmm. And I can, especially if I'm familiar with the traditions that people are coming from, I can listen to a song that somebody has done and say, oh, you're really into this and this and this and this. These are the things that mean something to you. One of the first ones I did in English in America, the, uh, the first song composed was very Maranatha. And I'm like, oh, Maranatha. And the, the lady that composed it was like, yeah. I, that was really important to me when I was a child. It's, so it's deep in there. I didn't even think about that when I did the song or something like that. I, I mean, I'm quoting her imperfectly. Sure. So yeah. I hope I don't offend anyone by, by <laughs> paraphrasing. But that was what I took from the conversation. Something related to this is when we speak of heart language and heart music, um, something that's growing that's growing in the awareness of people who are working both in translation and in ethnomusicology is that people are are multilingual yeah. and so when we, when we say heart language it's 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 actually broader than that but coming from a monolingual perspective 
we like the idea that there's a single language that speaks to people and that's what we need to work in. Uh, but the reality is most of the world is multilingual and they have a variety of languages that will speak to their heart. And it's a, a matter of allowing people to use and interact in the languages that mean something to them. And in the same way, um, there are many heart musics. It's um, when we first went to Botswana, um, a lot of the training has to do with identifying the traditional music of a community or a culture. And what we found instead, uh, Rob would have a lot of interactions with people where he would find it's it's not just the songs that are a part of their tradition that are used in traditional ceremonies or on traditional occasions. But in fact, there were a lot of different music styles and traditions that touch people's hearts. For example, in, in the Lutheran church, um, people had a great love for the hymns, the hymns that had been translated. This doesn't nullify their traditional style of music. It's just one of their many heart musics. Yeah. And allowing people the flexibility to engage with scripture and engage with God in the many musics that are meaningful to their heart. This is, it's a, it's very rewarding to see people communicating, not just in all of the languages, but all of the musics. So tell us about some of the places where you have uh, done this kind of work or engaged in a process like that, you know, who you were working with and, and how you saw it bear fruit, or just uh, sometimes you don't get to be around long enough to see that, but you know, how you saw the spirit at work and and what you what you saw happening there just give us a little insight into what this looks like in some of the places you've done this i mean i've done a lot of them and they're all they're all special and they're all powerful mm. and they all turn out entirely different and the, the process is different every time i mean i go in with a plan and then there's always a day when something goes so dramatically wrong that i have to abandon my plan and that's just that's just the nature of these workshops but some that I've seen powerful fruit from. Um, one of the, I, I did a workshop in Psalms, in Naro language, and uh, this it was an exciting one in that they were they finished translating the Psalms and they were talking about how to release the Psalms. And I had a conversation with some people on the translation team and said, "We well, you know the Psalms are like the songbook of the Bible," and uh, I think. As, a, as somebody that's in the periphery of, of the translation community, that if you haven't translated the Psalms in such a way that they can be sung, you've kind of missed something there because you have to think about translating the medium as well as the words. And they said, well, we think they can be sung, but who, who can help us write songs? And I mean, I, I was cheeky and I'm like, how long have you known me? How many times have I said, this is what I do? <laughs> and so we organized a, a gathering where all the all the the churches that had that were ethnically that this community sent their choirs, and we composed about two CDs worth of songs from Psalms, and that was how the Psalms entered the community. They they left singing Psalms from the backs of the trucks. And uh, I talked to the, the consultant on the project about a year later and he said that he and his wife are going to these churches now. And it's like they've stopped. They've abandoned the liturgy. They aren't doing sermons. They aren't doing any of the prayers or just singing psalms for the whole service. <laughs> I don't know how long, how long that lasted, but I thought that, that sounds like a win. <laughs> it does. Yeah. You know, that's one of the ones Well, the, the most extreme 
projects for me was was working in Hume, which is in the Kalahari, a group you're familiar with. Yeah. And uh, the the reason for that one is they were doing translation of certain key Bible passages, and very few people can read the language, and mm-hmm. so a printed Bible would not have much impact. And the the folks that brought me out there were saying that the uh, people are they're dominated by another group. And so if you want to become a, a Christian, you have to become a Christian kind of under this other group that's there, right? Yeah. And the other group, they don't have the Bible in their language either. That's a work in progress. Uh, it's coming along. There's a translation work that's happening, but they don't have they don't have direct access to the word even there. So the, they're working in in several languages removed, several cultures removed in accessing the scripture. And so we wanted to do something that was just as close as we can get with with a few barriers. It's their language, it's their cultural music, it's them engaging with the scripture. And uh, what was fun about this one is the people that came, it really felt like the the wedding feast of the lamb in that <laughs> a bunch of people had been invited and a bunch of people had agreed to come. And then on the last day, for reasons we don't know, like 90% of the people that had signed up decided at the last minute they weren't going to come. Mm-hmm. And there, there was one guy who had signed up and he was coming. And as he was riding alone in the truck coming from the, the remote village to the village where we were holding the workshop, he said, take me back, take me home, take me home. And the guy that was driving said, no, I don't want to take you all the way back there. So he was <laughs> the one guy that was there the first evening. And so they just, they, they just reached out and gra- gathered anybody do you own a musical instrument? Come to this thing. Do you yeah. do you know how to sing? Come to this thing. And so they didn't come with any any church music background. And so they were playing instruments that, like, had I gone to any other group in Botswana, and they, they brought, like, when the Naro bring their church choirs in, they know how church music is supposed to sound. And they, they yeah. come in with, with that as a pre, preconceived notion of how church music sounds sounds these the the guys in the community had no preconceptions and so they had their four-string guitars and their their stinkani and their uh, sahaba and uh, they just started playing this stuff and and it just for me as someone who loves that traditional music this is really uh this is a powerful thing to me to hear this music being played uh, the moment we didn't get on tape because the guy Ishni has a video of this guy that He's playing the sahaba, which is a, a kind of a shepherd's instrument. And uh, as he's he's jamming on it, this one of the younger guys begins to sing the 23rd Psalm over this. Mm-hmm. And, and a, an old guy who was there says, you're doing it wrong. Here's how you sing to a sahaba. And, he, and there's a way that you sing to the sahaba where you, you don't just sing all the words linearly. You kind of riff on, on certain phrases. And so he started doing this riffing on the certain phrases. It's very, very traditional, very deep tradition, but he's doing the 23rd song. And uh, the guy that was doing the vocals, he got really sick after that, was not able to record a final version of the song as he had done it. Uh, but we have a little bit of it on video. But just that kind of thing happening is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, that is the shepherd psalm on the shepherd's instrument, sung a shepherd's right. way. That's, that's pretty cool. So... Um, Let's talk some about the process here, and then we'll talk some about the um, 
you know how the value of of this kind of thing for folks in the U.S. So what we did here was, um, I imagine there there are different ways that a group would go about selecting the psalm, but in this case, uh, we selected a psalm, or it could be any scripture portion. Psalm 77, I chose verses 11 and 12 out of there, but you know the whole psalm is fair game. Let's just walk through. Let's say that's happened. Somehow groups collaborated and decided that's what we really want to do. So what happens next? Okay. Well, and there's there's two ways that I approach it, and it depends on how much time I have. What I'm often doing with with churches these days is a kind of half-day seminar. Mm-hmm. And then I acknowledge that everything that we're doing is highly compressed. And if left to my own devices, I will spend more time on it. And so that's what I did with this particular psalm is I, I did it. I allowed myself the time it took because I, I sure. didn't have a I didn't have a deadline before lunch. Had I had a deadline before lunch, it would have been a very different thing. And so, so the the ideal process is I will read the psalm, right? I read the whole thing and kind of get a feel for it, and then let it sit for a day. And I'll do that until I start start understanding it. I'm always asking myself myself this question of so what is the psalm about inherently, and what is it saying to me today? And when I'm doing it just in the abstract, I'm looking for what is the kind of the centerpiece? What's what's the part of it that's speaking to me most strongly? And in the case of if I'm given an assignment like I was with Psalm 77, you gave me what you thought of as the key verses. So I already knew the answer to what are the key verses. But it's then what is the rest of it saying? And how can I render those verses in such a way that is informed by what I'm getting from it? Mm-hmm. We tend to, in, in our culture, read silently. We'll just open a book and read along. And your brain interprets what you're reading as you go. But if you read out loud, you have to add interpretation. So if I'm just reading, uh, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. It doesn't really mean very much. What's, what's important about that? Uh, I cried out for, to God for help. Is it I cried out to God for help? I cried out to God for help. Not, the, not other things. I cried out to God. I cried out to God for help. You know, you emphasize different things based on, on what you think it means, what you think the important part is. And so after I've let it sit for a while, I read it out loud. And I read it out loud trying to define the meaning in how I how I emphasize words, how I um, how I phrase things. As I read through it, and, and there's a process of, of kind of cycling read, reading through in cycles, and, and exaggerating that interpretation. It almost sounds like, um, well, it's like you, you, you're preaching the word at that point. You aren't, you aren't, like a pastor will say, will read the word and then exposit upon it. Yeah. The goal with this, with this reading is you are expositing in how you read. You aren't saying, here's what I think it means. You're saying, Hopefully, by how I read it, you understand what I think it means, if you follow that. Yeah. So, I cried out to God to hear me. I cried out to God to hear me. And you can play with it in different ways. And some of the songs that people have done, it's like, I'm not sure what the meaning is. I hear it, I hear it this way, this way, and this way. And so they'll repeat it several different ways right. okay. based upon what they're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'll do for a while. And as I'm doing that, I know that I, you've given me the, the core of the song. You've given me the, the assignment. 
And there's things that I'm thinking, I want to pull these other things in that are, are, are speaking to me about as commentary on this key verse. And with this one, so I've done that. I've pulled out uh, the, the lyrics that I had there. I, I pulled out the first part. And I, there's a part at the end that really spoke to me. There's a, it's not in, I have the NIV up here. It's, it's not nearly as compelling as some of the other ones I read. I, I pulled up different translations as well. Mm, okay. And just to have access to them. Uh, partly because if I'm doing something that gets published, I don't want it to be recognizable directly as one translation. If I'm doing a memory verse song, then it has to be word for word. But if I'm doing a, one of my own songs, then I, I don't want it to be word for word because I don't want to get sued for taking someone's translation. <laughs> okay. Uh, and if we're That's doing a whole other podcast. And when I'm working in a, in a seminar, in a group, I'll often have, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the makeup of the group. So I'll have somebody there that it's kind of my exegetical checker to make sure that I don't change anything that's, that's uh, changing the meaning. I did not do that this time because I'm working by myself. So I had these, the, those elements that I pulled out. So it's the, the crying out to God and the, you hold my eyelids open in this, this, the part at the end, uh, you, your path led through the sea, through the mighty waters and your footprints were not seen. And that just really spoke to me in, in terms of, and I'm not going to explain why, because that would kind of invalidate the whole process, but there's something about creating art that pulls something deep out of you. Okay. And, and so that's, so that's where the song was. I, I had basically the lyric at that point. I had the rhythm of it. And I was able to read out loud with a flow the parts that I, I wanted to draw upon. And then I pick up an instrument. And I usually compose with, I have a, a ram key from South Africa. That's a four-stringed lute. And I often compose on that because it forces me to use simple chords. Okay. So a lot of these things about, about some of the African instruments that I love that really only play in, in two keys. And so it kind of forces you to to simplify the harmonic structure you're working with. And so I came up with the song that way. And I thought I was done for a while, but I, I, I kept on. And, and, and if this were a, a short seminar, I would be done because you don't have time to, to rethink your music at that point. Though some people take take their songs away and say, I know this one isn't done yet. I want to work on it some more. And that's how I felt about this one. Okay. It was uh, melodically and lyrically correct, and the rhythm of the words was correct, but it didn't evoke the right emotional feeling that I had for it. Um, and as is the way of, of uh, right brain thinking, a lot of this is happening in my right brain, this recognition that this isn't musically, it's not there yet. And so I was in the shower, as often happens, I get creative inspiration in the shower, and I started, actually, I imagined my fingers playing a number of unusual chords that don't normally go together, but I could hear them. I thought, that's, that's what needs to be there. And so I went up, this is like 11 o'clock at night. I said, I just need to just go to sleep. I'm just, I have to go upstairs. And uh, I went up there and I found these chords on the guitar. And the song is the same melodic contour and the same rhythm that I had before. But the chords happening underneath are entirely different. The original song, it's very one five one four American folk music kind of song, and this new one has a has a weird ringing tone and and a descending bass line. That, but it but then but then it fits how I felt when I did the song. Yeah. So that's kind of the process that I use to go through it. 
Okay, so I think what we'll do here is play what you composed and then uh, come back and talk about it here. I cry loud to God I cry loud and he will hear me You hold my eyelids open My hands are stretched out without wearying And I said let me remember the song I once sang Let me sing it again And I said Let me remember The song I once sang Let me sing it again I will remember The deeds of the Lord I will remember Your wonders of old I will ponder all of your works And reflect upon all your mighty deeds music video will have some scenery from South Dakota and something yes. like that. A, a and black shot. and white. <laughs> black and white. <laughs> yeah. So um, as you've mentioned, this can be a, a, a fairly individual process. And so um, Ishni has also worked on the, the same psalm. Ishni, kind of talk through a little bit about your approach and uh, anything that you'd like to share about the uh, the process from your perspective or reflections on uh, the version we heard here? Yeah. One of the interesting things about uh, Rob and I working together is that sometimes on scripture songs, we can't work together because, because our inspiration will go in very different directions. We've actually had times when 
uh, we were at church and we would hear a verse and we would both get song ideas for it. Mm-hmm. And we came home one Sunday and uh, I was like, you know, I've got a I've got a song idea for that. And Rob's like, I do, too. And it's like, well, let's let's work on it together. And so he started to to play what he was working on. And I was like, nope, stop, go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> you go write your song. I'll write my song because it's amazing. They're totally same, different. Totally yeah. different. We have totally different directions that we will go with exactly the same verse using the same methodology. And so, and it often shows up in different chord progressions. I also compose with a limited instrument. Uh, it's the only thing I can really compose. on. <laughs> and so I have certain chords that are going to emerge time and time again. Rob will work on things often for long periods of time. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I work in flashes of inspiration plus a little bit of analysis. That's how I work. And so when I got your, your scripture verses, first I opened to different versions until I found one that I liked the rhythm of how it sounded when read out loud. And I settled on the ESV uh, myself. And one of my methods is I will I will take the sentence that's in front of me and I'll rewrite it on paper, kind of a literate approach. First of all, I'll, re- I'll rewrite it on paper according to like semicolons and commas and stuff like that until it's it looks like a chord chart <laughs> that you would sing from. And then I read it out loud and I will look for the patterns like in this. I saw I will remember mm-hmm. and then I will remember. So I knew that those were going to be the beginning of stanzas just because that's how they look. <laughs> and the nice thing about um, Psalms, when you're working with Psalms for scripture songs, is that many many of our English versions will actually write them out in stanzas. So it really helps with the reading it out loud and thinking of it as stanzas. So already my mind is thinking these are stanzas. Mm-hmm. And so it's primed to produce stanzas. And so then, um, so then when I was reading it out loud, I will remember And in both of our versions, you're going to hear remember is going to sound like that, because that's how remember sounds when you say it out loud. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And it's the same number of syllables. It's really quite neat and tidy, which makes it easier to do something repetitive. And what I'll often do is if I like the sound of something, I'll just do it again, which is sort of like it's it's cheating at rhyming, basically. So I did verse 11, I repeated it, and then I just basically sang it out loud. The way that I work is it's not like I'm writing the song. It's like my brain is writing the song for me. All of us write silly songs, I think. You know, somebody says something ridiculous and you write a silly song in response to it. We all sort of do that spontaneously. Parents will do that for their their kids. They'll sing song little things to them. How do we do that? It's just something that our brains will spontaneously do because we have music that's been instilled in us. So I just, I trust my brain to do that for me. And I just open my mouth and sing something. And it just, so the first line was just, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I was like, Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I said, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I was able to just copy the last part of the first one. And then I just did that a couple of times. And I sang that a few times until I was like, yeah, yeah, that's the melody I like. And I, I, you know, I tweaked it here and there until it was exactly the way I wanted it to sound. And then I thought, okay, I can't ignore verse 12. (laughs) So I was like, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I was like, ooh, so I just did that again. And so it's just, it's the thing about it, 
when you produce songs in this way, it will sound like it's always existed because it's coming out of all of the stuff that you have already put in you from other sources, other music mm -hmm. sources. And so uh, I've heard it said <laughs> at other scripture songwriting workshops, somebody will, they'll do the song and then they'll stop and they'll say, that's a song already. And I'm like, no, no, right. <laughs> no it isn't. It happens you, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> there's something, songs that come out of the rhythm of the words and that come out of the musics that we already know that come out of the intuitions that we formed based on music that we've been listening to for decades. It sounds very natural. It sounds like something that already exists. And no doubt we do pull little little licks and little melodic intervals and, and patterns. We pull that from different places. So I suppose you could reconstruct the songs from all of the songs that we've put into ourselves, but we don't really have to. <laughs> Rob, what's the phrase about artists, bad artists? Oh. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. <laughs> All right. Well, let's listen to uh, Ishni's version of the psalm. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will remember Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. You know, both of these methods are valid, and both of these are part of the process. Right. And the, the thing that I take away from it is... Um, we it's how we learn the scripture too what what i have discovered is uh i i've learned the word better by creating songs from it than i learned from um a, a traditional quote-unquote bible study yeah sit around and say here's what i get out of it and the things especially in the psalms that this one is great in that it's full of, of praising and it's full of lament and they they exist side by side together right and there's an appeal to the word and there's an appeal to the goodness of god and many psalms are like that and i found that at happy times in my life and in sad times of my life the psalms have been my soundtrack and that i've got a number of them now just inside i don't forget them now because i have songs yeah. that i've made from them like sometimes when you're reading the word you get a sudden powerful insight and you think whoa whoa how did I never see that there before? Yeah. And then five minutes later, you can't even explain it. And if I if I put that if I'm in that mode and I write a song, then even if I can't explain it, I have that insight every time I come back to that song. I don't know what other people get out of it, but that's what I get out of it. Yeah, it's it's true that I when I was uh, pastoring a church, part of our confirmation curriculum was the 
to learn the the scripture verses and they were set to music actually quite well done and uh, that's the same for me those are some of the verses i and i was not even i wasn't a student i was an instructor but i remember those verses so well because of singing them so so let's say you're in a congregation or a small group of folks that have asked you to come and help them to do this. You know, we've kind of talked about the value in that. Certainly, you go deep in the Word and really wrestle with with Scripture, and and uh, certainly the Lord's going to work through that and put it in their hearts. But I think the first question somebody's going to ask is, okay, well, who's the right kind of person to show up for this? You know, maybe somebody says, well, I'm not musical. I don't know really how to play instruments or stuff like that. Should I go to something like that if it's happening at my church? I take in a lot of times kinds of people. Take in, that's the wrong word. <laughs> it's like they're, they're strays. <laughs> um, if, you, if you are already musical, you have an advantage, usually. Mm-hmm. Unless the music that you know is, um, is so rigid that you, you, can't, you can't have fun with it. Every once in a while I run into somebody that it's like the classical music training guy gets in the way of them being a, a songwriter. But usually, almost always, if you have a musical background, you have a benefit. So people with a musical background, even people that have written songs before, will find value in exploring the scripture this way. People that have not composed songs before will most likely compose songs in this event. And will often be surprised that they have done so. We have had, had people there that just like music and have no real musical background who uh, have done great songs. It's nice to have a good mix of people, uh, people that have a I always try, try to have at least one person who has a has a biblical languages background mm-hmm. or uh, or is, is a pastor, because as we as we adapt words to fit the music, it's like I say, the second second verse is the hardest one to write, because once you've written a verse and you have a chorus, if you if you want to go on and write more, you kind of are committed to. What you did when the first verse has to make sense, and so right. you want to revise the words a little bit to make it all fit together. And you want to have somebody on hand that can say, "That's still true to what it says," or "That's not true to what it says anymore." You know. And so some people work alone, and some people will collaborate. And as you have people with with mixed levels of ability and interest, having little groups, it can be highly profitable. Uh, you have to be willing to work with other people, and there's a certain amount of, of uh, vulnerability in the seminars. Uh, you have to be uh, willing to come in and teach a song that you've come up with, yeah. whether or not it's ready. You have to come in and say, here's what I've got right now, and, and play it for other people. And that can be hard. That's hard for me to do, and I do this all the time. But a willingness to to get up there and, and sing off key and miss a few chords and have somebody come alongside you and help you do it better you know is, is a that will get you pretty far and these things can last like the ones i've done in the states have usually not been more than about three hours but overseas i've gone as long as a week and that's right. a very different dynamic sure. whether it's a three-hour thing or a week-long thing it's all ages as well yeah. um, yes the one of the workshops that we did there was a, a whole family that came and the the children all elementary school age, all wrote scripture songs uh, and wrote good songs that that people still remember, that people went away singing and can still sing later. And and frankly, I think that it was the children in that case. That was the first one we did at this particular congregation. And having the children share as a memory verse song of the congregation, people were like, I can't believe that little girl came up with that song. 
it's just uh, it spoke to the congregation. It was something that was was uh, was nurtured in the congregation, but also said to them, "We can do this too." And so the the next year was there were more people that were more enthusiastic. They did like they didn't understand the first year, but the second year they were really excited about hearing what would come out of the, the workshop. That's great. So so what would be the value of a congregation or a small group of of Christians having a workshop like this? There are a number of potential goals. When I'm working overseas, I'm usually working in an area that's it's a minority language, usually underrepresented by music, and the music that they have is all translated hymnodies that may not be meaningful. Now, in this country, you do have actually most of the music we do in church is imported hymnody. It's mm-hmm. coming from Europe, and if you're more contemporary, coming from Australia. So in that sense, it's not coming out of our own cultural music, but we're used to it in our church. And so that's not, it's not as big of a need in the English-speaking community as it is in, um, say, Albanian or, or some of the other places that I've worked. Yeah. But there is still a value in, in creating something when, like Hillsong, right? Hillsong is, is creating a lot of music that's used in contemporary worship. And they're consciously creating things for the broadest possible audience of worshipers. Audience is the wrong word, but the broadest possible, the ease of participation. The most people can just kind of jump in and sing this song. And there's a lot of value in that. But there's also value in congregations that create something just for our group. Mm-hmm. Not exclusionary. But it's like like the church that I go to, we do a lot of uh, our our natural way of singing is is very Americana. We've got a lot of like we have a banjo player and a fiddle player and accordion, and you can imagine the kind of music that we have there. And um, <clears throat> we can do Hillsong music, but we have to filter it through our musical language, and we do that, and it's great. But but when we do stuff that's that's just us, we can do things that have have sounds and we can write stuff that that we know that our congregation is going to sing powerfully because that's who we're writing for and so we could be writing for our own congregation uh, and there's value in that there's also value in this as as a devotional exercise which is how i've been kind of talking about it in in my own that's how i use it in my own life the first time i did this in the united states it was at a at an event geared toward Bible translators. And uh, Bible translators are people that spend a lot of time in biblical languages. They're using using that part of their brain that does analysis of um, discourse and language and what does this actually mean and what did it mean in the original culture and this sort of a very left brain approach to, to engaging with the scripture. And that's good. That's a good way to engage with the scripture. But if that's your job, how do you how do you do a devotional engagement with the scripture? And like many pastors that I know, they don't really have that kind of they don't have a de- devotional access because mm-hmm. their job is to engage with it in a certain way. So they can't just do it for for fun is the wrong phrase, but they can't they can't do it for fun. They can't just do it for personal edification because right. every time they do it, they're doing it for work. And so this is a way to engage with the scripture in a, a way that you will learn it better, but it's not in a way that you normally are doing. It's more of an experientially oriented 
intuitive, right-brained approach to learning the scripture. So that's where it's valuable on the individual level. And some of these songs, even if they're done on the most personal level, they become part of the soundtrack of a congregation, or they become part of the soundtrack of, of Christian history. You know, we yeah. can't really predict. If, if you set out to write the great American hymn, you'll probably fail. If you set out to write a meaningful song, you may write the great American hymn. Right. And you have to write a lot of really bad songs before you write good ones. And so if you don't start writing, if you don't start composing songs, you'll never you'll never get around to composing the great one. Yep. Yeah, and so we are uh, coming out of the time here in, at the time we're recording this that uh, where a lot of churches are starting to open back up and have their public worship, and then uh, we can predict, Lord willing, that uh, they'll start to be able to do other in-person things. And we will, at the end of the podcast, let folks know how you can, uh, in your congregation, can uh, reach out to Rob and Ishni and uh, invite them to uh, do a workshop with you and and. Uh, kind of dip your foot in the pool to see uh, if this is something for you and your congregation. And um, hopefully you can uh, be built up by that and and uh, work with the scripture in a different way and, and engage in God's word in, in a way that uh, speaks to your hearts differently. So Rob and Ishni, thanks for being on the podcast today. Appreciate everything. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Thanks to Rob and Ishni for joining us on the podcast today. We hope that you caught a small glimpse of the power that engaging with God's Word through a creative process like composing music could have for your small group or congregation. If you are interested in having Rob and Ishni come out and work with your congregation or small group, click the link in the podcast episode description or send me an email at info at lbt.org and I'll get you connected to them. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past issues of the podcast at lbt.org slash podcast or on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to www.lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable podcast is edited and produced by Andrew Olson. The executive producer is Amy Gertz. Music was written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Rodowski. So long for now.